Hi, my name is Stuart Alsop, and this is my podcast, Crazy Wisdom, where I interview creative people about how they work with and manage the stress that is inherent in creative work. What I've realized over the past 10 years of my research is that anybody who is creating something of value that is significantly different from what has come before is considered crazy. Most of us have a fear, an ingrained fear of going crazy. Uh, so what I'm saying is grab onto that fear, realize that it's there, and just go with it because the problems we're going to be facing over the next 20 years require crazy people in order to solve them. Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. My guest here is Tommy Leap. He invests in startups with uh, his firm Jetstream, and he also does BD at AngelList. And we're here to talk about creativity and stress within the context of how people find jobs and how they find their life's work. So welcome to the show, Tommy. Thanks for having me, Stuart. Yeah. Uh, so let's get right into it about um, stress and creativity. Have, what Do you have a definition of stress or what's, what's your definition of creativity? How do you view them playing a role together? Yeah, sure. So uh, with creativity, I think of it um, in a way as uh, deviations from kind of standard thinking. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, we, we have kind of a context of, you know, thinking within bounds to be safe in a lot of ways, particularly in a professional setting. Um, and so kind of when I think of creative solutions or people who are creative, Think of people who have uh, found ways to go outside of those bounds, outside of those constraints, um, and come with, with solutions that are new, novel, um, uh, bring us outside of ourselves in a way. Mm. Um, and then as far as stress goes, I think of stress as a constraint, usually as um, some, some expectation we have um, that might be either due to time or due to pressures from other people or from society um, or kind of like physical things. Um, and you know, create creative thinking creatively or creativity in regards to stress to me is um, basically coming up with uh, ways to either quickly get to solutions or, or solve problems that, um, in a way, can like circumvent or go outside the bounds of uh, those those mm. constraints. What you're talking about, particularly with creativity, reminds me of stuff I've been reading about, kind of the uh, order and chaos, uh, mm. the, and the and how the creativity really comes from going in between those things. So we, mm. we, we, a lot of us have a, a way that we live our lives. It's, uh, you know, functional planned and everything like that. And then chaos comes into mm. it and brings a lot of like things we don't understand. Chaos is unpredictable, unknown mm -hmm. and stuff like that. And so it's that moving between those two things that creates this kind of friction mm. that, that kind of creates these really interesting things. And it also plays into the archetype of the kind of founder who's, who's just crazy and, mm. and, you know, like, and, and like creates these these amazing things, uh, uh, but doesn't really take into account what what other people are thinking. Or I, I don't know. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think the yeah order order in case is a great metaphor for it. Um, I think just in general, like there there's a lot of value into having kind of ritual and stable patterns in one's life and habits. Um, but there are so many things outside of our control that mm -hmm. just happen, and and uh, every day we're in a position to react to what's coming at us. Right. Um, tell me, what do you mean about the founder? Uh, so like the Steve Jobs kind of yeah. archetype of, of, of just like uh, 
balls to the wall just like you know is just gonna um has these creative ideas is going to do them no matter what uh yeah. and kind of brings that chaos uh into the into the organization but then also creates an organization out of out of that as well yeah so i think it's really fascinating we've mythologized it a little bit I, as i was walking over here in the panhandle um i i realized that apple somehow managed to get uh their products in both of my po- pockets <laughs> i have an iphone in one pocket and the airpods in the other and i was like wow that's impressive uh-huh. um you know who builds that kind of organization? How do you do that? The the Steve Jobs thing, we know that he um, he didn't come up with all the ideas, mm. right? And so he had an organization of people who are like highly capable. And um, I didn't know him personally. I knew some people who worked with him. Um, I think I think actually there's a, there is this thing that's inter- interesting to me from the founder perspective is we do mythologize it a lot. Mm. Um, and uh, I was reflecting even as I was walking over here, how could someone like Steve Jobs who it was viewed as someone who, you know, was very up and down and working with um, him. Um, you know, when, when he died, there's just an outpouring of love for him from mm. the entire world um, for what he actually accomplished and did for us. Um, yeah, it's just very, two very interesting sides of it. Um, I think the, the you know, the mythology, um, mythologizing founders and their stories, it starts really early, actually, mm. um, particularly even in fundraising. I was thinking about fundraising announcements and, you know, we see um, all we read about and, and the stories the media tell are, you know, this celebrity founder, um, you know, raised 10 million, 50 million, 100 million dollars from these celebrity VCs and did it in two weeks. Right. Mm. And that's like a total outlier scenario. Uh-huh. But then, you know, for any founder who's reading this online and they're like, OK, that's what I'm going to go do. And I think I can go do that. Then they hit reality. And it's like, oh, it turns out I'm not a celebrity founder. Uh, you know, this might be the I first time I'm doing it. I don't know how that works. <laughs> I've just read I, I just read this online. Uh-huh. Um, fundraising itself has there's so many nuances to it. Um, hmm that we could get into. But. So yeah, no, and, and I'd love to talk about it and I'd love to, cause I went through that same thing myself mm-hmm. and do, who, who creates the mythology mm-hmm. in those particular, in those celebrity, is it, do you think it's an, um, do you think it's a conscious decision on the part of the founder to create this myth so mm-hmm. that the, the VCs buy into it and then they realize that they can create that myth so that they can then create an organization? Yeah. 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 I mean, I'm, I'm personally just like very interested in narrative design and storytelling. Uh-huh. So, um, I work with founders and help them put together their narratives for fundraising. Mm-hmm. Um, then I invest in them and I help put those rounds together. Um, and so I'm like very focused on the narrative side. I think the the first thing is the expectations of a founder, uh-huh. right? And it's coming in. It's like, well, what is fundraising about? And um, fundraising is a thing that founders do very infrequently. And so it's often a new thing, especially for the first time someone does it. Um, so there's a big hurdle, big kind of learning hurdle that first time. And you can, fortunately, there's a lot, there is a lot of content online. Mm. Um, you know, one could say that as, uh, startups and investing has become more popular, there's maybe more noise, but there's some Mm. good content out there. Um, and you know, it's important to kind of cut, cut to the truth for that. Um, you know, the other side of it is the expectation that a founder has going into fundraising and, um, for any founder I know, even, even good ones who repeat founder, I always say like, just be prepared. It may take six months uh-huh. um, and it may not work out. Uh-huh. Right. Um, and you know, you don't really go into something thinking, okay, this is going to take six <laughs> months to like do or fail or fail. Yeah. Right. Um, and then the other side is man, founders going into fundraising is just rejection after rejection. Also something that founders, especially like aren't used to because they, they you know, are in a habit of kind of creating the world they want to live in. Mm. And so, um, you know, Charles Hudson from Precursor a couple weeks ago sat on a panel uh, that we had at AngelList that, um, you know, you have to be ready to get rejected 50 times. And if you're not ready for that, then, you know, you may not be ready to pay the price for the thing that you want to get, mm. uh, which is a, yeah. 
And it's a different set of requirements than their normal job as well. Like creating a product or creating an organization are very different from what is required to raise money. Um, and from what I learned, it's a lot of social proof and all mm -hmm. these kind of demonstrating value and all these mm -hmm. different things, uh, things that might a lot of people have, uh, uh, analogize for dating and stuff mm -hmm. like that. Um, right. Do you find that that's true? Or? Yeah, I agree with you there. Uh -huh. You know, it's a it's a you know, it's something you don't do that often. Um, there's a funny thing about like, oh, why this person's great at building a product or building a company or a good leader. Why aren't they good at fundraising? Mm -hmm. And um, it's not, you know, it's not apples to apples. Fundraising thing is a thing you can learn. It's, uh. a, it's a skill. Um, you learn from experience also. Um, and then as far as like kind of the dating thing, uh, fundraising, it's also like an asymmetric information problem, uh, right? Uh. And so like the other party has some information, you have some information. In fundraising, the VCs do it, you know, they're basically listening to pitches every day. When I was um, kind of thinking, I was at a firm called Floodgate, and I was talking to other associates at other firms, and there was this one woman who's like, I don't know if I want to be a career VC. I don't know if I want to sit in pitch meetings all day for the rest of my life, right? right? And it's like, okay, good point. VCs literally, they do this mm -hmm. for their day job, mm -hmm. whereas founders do it in certain pieces of time mm -hmm. in their company. Interesting. Yeah, so uh, VCs are experts in, in this particular thing, so they can they, they have a lot more, they can play that role much better than the founder can. Right, they, well, they know how to play the game. And yeah. then, you know, um, uh, it's really nice when VCs um, have provide the founders with clarity onto what to expect and all mm -hmm. that. Not all VCs do that. Mm -hmm. Everyone's busy, kind of assume everyone's kind of like doing their job well and, and you know, no malintent, but um, it's just a, it's a tough dynamic. Mm, interesting. And so I'd, I'm really interested in this question. Have, have you, for uh, Jetstream, have you raised from L LPs or are you? I have not. Okay. So I um, have been investing uh, primarily through AngelList syndicates. Uh -huh. So um, I'll meet a founder. Kind of my process is um, a lot of it comes kind of back to the coaching I was doing with helping job seekers. But the way I like to work with founders is I'll meet a founder. I'll get conviction pretty quickly into whether I want to help this person or this team. Um, and I, I have conviction around the company and the market. And so mm -hmm. there's a little bit of that, like, do I want to make the quote investment decision? Mm -hmm. And then I'll work with the founder and co coach the founder through the fundraising process. Mm -hmm. And that might be some number of months. But my alignment is if I can help this founder get a strong lead investor, um, potentially some from my network or their network, um, and I, I'll bring my network kind of and making that decision to work with the person, I'll say, all right, I'll open up the Rolodex. Um, and if I can help that person land a lead investor, then I will invest alongside that. So that's kind of my strategy today and the way that I'm basically looking to level up and then eventually raise a fund. So, you know, I should uh -huh. say all of this, what I'm talking about kind of with fundraising, both for founders and for VCs, I haven't done it myself. Interesting. But I have had so many um, kind of reps or shots on goal with other founders that I've, uh, and I've learned from VCs. So I kind of, you know, I'm hearing information from both sides. So I like to be mm -hmm. the glue that then helps steer the founder forward in that. Mm, interesting. And so can you talk more about uh, how AngelList has created these syndicates and how they work and how they're different than traditional investment? Yeah, absolutely. So um, AngelList has been around for a little while. Kind of V1 of AngelList was just an email list. Mm. Um, and it was Naval emailing other founders, or sorry, other, other angel investors say, hey, do you want to invest in this company? V2 of AngelList was an open crowdfunding platform. So like Kickstarter. It's actually kind of still there's, there's some... Uh, most people know it as that. So then, you know, some four years ago, it flipped and it went from this public crowdfunding platform to a private investing platform. Uh -huh. Some of the insight is that a lot of the best uh, deals or investments that happen in Silicon Valley happen behind closed doors with investors privately. And so AngelList um, 
kind of rejigger to identify itself as, well, how can we work with the best investors, um, provide them with online tools to make investments, and then ultimately, eventually democratize these tools for other people who mm. want to start getting into investing. Mm. So a syndicate is, um, oh, a syndicate itself is a, a group of LPs or a group of investors that you share deal flow with. Mm. So you can create a syndicate and invite um, other investors or angels you know into this group. And then on a deal by deal basis, you can share opportunities with investors in that group. So for example, um, I started my syndicate, I, I invited a few of my friends who are founders and other angels and VCs I know in the community. Um, I have access to investments, uh, to deal flow, um, just through, through knowing a number of founders. And then I would say, I would ask a founder, hey, would you give me an allocation into your company, mm. say like 100K in mm. your next round? And then I would work with that founder to get an investor. And then I would share that deal with the syndicate. And then as the the kind of syndicate lead, um, I would have to inv- invest a small amount, but then I invite other people to participate in it. And the advantage for me as a lead is that other people, um, I'm effectively acting like a VC, but just in a one a deal by deal basis. Mm-hmm. And so I get some of the carry economics that VCs would get. Um, and then I also get to help the founders and it's a way for me to um, get upside in investing in the startup um, and have capital come from other sources. Mm-hmm. So. And do they and do the founders only uh, is the only benefit that they get from working with you? Is it only that your network, or do you also provide kind of assistance in operations or kind of strategy? And yeah, stuff like you that? know, I I think it's a it's a question that every founder should ask of every investor. Uh-huh. Um, you know, I worked at this from Floodgate, and Mike Mables, who's one of the founders there, would say that uh, VCs need to, need to not kid themselves that 99% of their value is writing that check. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but I think it's also we're in an age when there are so many options for investors that investors should also differentiate and sell themselves to the founders. Mm. So for me, my value prop is, um, you know, if you land in Silicon Valley and you need help fundraising or even just thinking through the process, I can help you with your narr- the narrative design of your deck or of your story. Mm. So what's the story you tell? And I do a whole workshop around this. Um, and then I introduce you to investors and then I coach you through the process. Mm. So many, you know, one thing that's nice about Silicon Valley is many people are open to making introductions to investors. However, I think that there's a gap there. Like, you know, you can go meet these five partners at firms, which is great. But then, you know, how do you, what's the context around that? How do you get a sense for what those partners like? Um, how do you, as you were saying, kind of leverage social proof in some way? Mm. Um, how do you just know what to do, mm-hmm. right? How do you know if you're doing it right? Mm. And so that's what I like to help founders with. And so something I've been uh, thinking about in my own life is how sometimes there's the cliche of sometimes we're our, our own worst enemies. Um, mm-hmm. And when you're looking at founders and you see that behavior, is that something like just an immediate uh, no, like I won't help them? Or is that something you think you can kind of help that founder work with? Kind of overcome. Mm-hmm. Um, that behavior of like there's uh which which part like self-sabotage self-sabotage yeah Yeah. Mm -hmm. um you know it's interesting i was was listening to your last episode about um attachment styles Mm -hmm. i think it's kind of interesting Mm -hmm. so um some the self-sabotage thing is hard i think um like any kind of investing um you're looking for signals that someone um has demonstrated some um um, you know, just competency and like way to do great things. Mm-hmm. Um, you're looking for signs that they've, um, you know, what's the thing they're most proud of, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I personally really like to understand the story that's deeper in the founders, that's deeper than just the company itself, mm-hmm. kind of like the why they got involved. Mm-hmm. 
there's often like a there's some north star or some like deeper truth to why a person is building a company it may be that they want to um build a mental health company because they had friends who had mental health issues and so they're like you know this is just really important to me um or they um you know have just some expertise or saw the market timing for something like um you know like alexa and google home and some voice software that they're like i just really have to go after this space right now because it's blowing up um but there, there's often some little kernel of the thing. I really want to get to that because then that's the place from which I can say like, okay, this is this is where it starts, and now I can direct the person in in alignment with that truth uh, for them. Mm-hmm. So you're saying that they already have a spark in them that's really driving them to do this, and that's like without that, there's no like it wouldn't even want to be involved. right. It's like yeah. what's the point? Yeah, <laughs> and, and you know, they're the uh, it's uh, investing in VC is a funny thing. Like the other piece of it that I've learned over the last. Uh, couple years actually is is this part about being zen about things because um you know there's a lot of fomo in in missing companies that then go on and 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 do really well Mm. um but you know you really have to even as an investor you have to think about like why am why am i in Mm. this business is it just to make returns for my lps your lps want returns but they also want to actually believe a story they want to they want to believe that they're putting money to work in a way that um, is beneficial for society or is aligned with some of their goals. So I think a lot of this does get down to understanding the deeper desire. I think that's a really good point because from outside of Silicon Valley, a lot of people, particularly today, uh, look at rich tech founders and kind of see these people who are ultra high capitalists who who only care about the money and stuff like that. But we're human beings. Everybody's a human being and everybody has this story, this ability to make stories and buy into stories. Mm-hmm. And, and so it's I think it's a really important point because we're all human and we all uh, find really important satisfaction from creating a story, believing that story and letting that story drive our actions. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's just not something that we see from the outside. Um, uh, um, I don't really have a point. For yeah. That. Well, there, there, I mean, you know, there's, there's kind of like the Steve Sinek, Sinek guy who says, you know, start with why and kind of like, you know, have that as your motivation. The other thing that came to mind, so I was kind of thinking about, what we're going to talk about was this um, was the Joseph Campbell idea of um, you know Joseph Campbell yes what is the meaning of life kind of where's what is the meaning and he'll say um, you know there he doesn't believe that there's a single meaning but that um, the meaning of life is to pursue the feeling of being alive mm. and so then how do we what is that you know how does that manifest itself and a lot of it is uh, you know through relationships and through um, the pursuit of kind of achieving one's own hero's journey mm. interesting. So I want to talk about more. We've been talking about fundraising and the stresses of fundraising, um, and now I want to switch to the stresses of finding a job, particularly here in Silicon Valley, because that's a very stressful thing that most people deal with. Uh, what are some of the unique stresses that are are come along with that? Yeah, with the job seeking. Well, one, it, it seems like everyone's in a in a fast growing startup and and mm. thrilled and having a great time, and you know I'm sitting here on the sidelines and. You know, I'm a consultant or I'm an independent or I'm unemployed and I don't have health insurance and how am I going to pay rent in San Francisco? So it's um, it can be intimidating from that standpoint. Um, uh, the other thing is there are all these companies kind of firing and going off. And, you know, the, the, the hard work is um, kind of doing that inner work of how do I want to spend my time? How do I want to show up every day? Um, you know, what, what do I what contributions do I want to make? Mm. Um there are many companies, you know, in Silicon Valley that they're just firing. You know, unicorn this, unicorn that. Unicorn. I actually saw a, a tweet by um, CEO of one of these mental health companies that said, you know, we just got a billion dollar valuation. We're like the first mental health unicorn. Oh. And 
it, in my mind, it's kind of like, okay, this is really interesting because there's a little bit of ego showing up there. Uh, <laughs> and how could it not? Uh, yeah, how could it not, right? <laughs> yeah. um, it's like, oh, you mental health company? Like, okay, like, oh, that's okay. fair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Um, so um, uh, I think from the, the the standpoint of Silicon Valley, things are things just move so fast here. And uh-huh. if you pay attention to the tech ecosystem, both from funding and like companies and all that, it just moves so fast. So um, there's, there's one, I think, for people who are seeking jobs, like... Um, you know, where, where do I fit in this? Um, is tech right, the right even thing for me? Um, you know, if you're an engineer coder and you really just want to build stuff, then like you can go for that. Um, there are a lot of opportunities there. For, but I think for people outside of that, it's uh, it's challenging to um, slot in. So one of the things that I was doing over the last couple of years uh, before joining AngelList, and I was actually, I came out of a, a venture firm and I was figuring out kind of what, you know, what's my place in this ecosystem. Um, is I, I started coaching people in this job process. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I, I deeply believe that any individual person has many possibilities. And so part of the work for me was exploring those possibilities for the person and, and what was interesting, kind of what came up for them as, as what they were called to. Um, and then taking that kind of philosophical, theoretical idea and then going out into the market and um, meeting people in the market and then finding out, like, you know, if... You know, I want to do design kind of in this capacity. Um, you know, I'm, I'm transitioning from someone who's like, um, you know, more, more operations and I want to do design. Like, okay, great. Like, that's that's the intention. So let's go out and like, let me put you in touch with a half dozen people who are doing what you want to do at different levels at different companies so that you can get feedback from the market on, on where mm-hmm. you might fit in. Mm-hmm. Uh, I actually think that's a thing that's hard right now. Normally mm-hmm. we do that, you know, if someone's looking for a job, they do that in the capacity of applying for a job, front door through like some system that's, you know, who knows if you're ever, ever are gonna hear back. Um, and then where you get the feedback from the market is in the interview process, which is, um, you know, someone's evaluating you and judging you as opposed to someone just saying like, you know, understanding you, listening and, and um, giving you intel on where you might be able to slot in. Yeah, interesting. And that also kind of applies to going to uh, getting pitch advice from non-investors as well, or, and stuff like that, where you're, where you're, where it doesn't really matter because it's not, it's not right. Exactly. Of, of yeah, we call it we call it uh-huh. friendly fire. So, like uh-huh. you know, if you're a founder and you're getting your story down and you're getting your narrative and you're getting your deck and everything's in place, and I honestly I like to get all that stuff set and be like more or less like this is our best effort for what we think is going to happen out there. And then we go put you in front of friendly fire. You get some feedback, um, and then it's like, okay, now let's line things. You get a few reps in, and be like, okay, mm-hmm. and then and, and like you literally tweak the story. I've been working with a guy since November. It's kind of like tweak the story, tweak the story, you know, uh, update the deck, get it right, and then now go out and it's like, okay, like it takes some time to get that mm-hmm. feedback loop going. Mm-hmm. What about the difference between? So you said about interviewing, and I imagine that a lot of um, the feedback that comes from interviewing is not explicit feedback, where mm-hmm. they're actually telling you like this is what you did wrong, but it's right. kind of things they don't really tell you. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and a lot of a lot of times they actually they you, you know kind of Facebook is just sort of known for never giving you feedback because they don't want to expose themselves to liability, uh-huh. and so you know many companies go down that route, and so um, the you know, how do you get feedback in an interview? So like I view the, if you want to get a job at a company, the process is kind of figure out what you want as much as you can, um, get a bit of a story and a narrative down that you can basically tell everyone every like over and over and over. And also so your friends can tell other people kind of this is the narrative of this mm. person. And a compelling narrative is a story that's easy to tell and memorable. And then you go out and um, instead of applying front door to any of these companies, um, which is, you know, it's not always easy, but yeah. if you can find a way, a vector into someone at a, at a company you're interested in, 
um, and have a ca- more casual conversation, um, then somewhat inevitably that person becomes your champion. Mm. And then you have a, a, a champion in the organization who then, you know, again, ideally can like maybe refer you into the company after they've gotten to know you a little bit. And then you would be entered into the very kind of like classic um you know, recruiting process, but you still have that champion if you need to get any kind of information or intel. And if you end up not getting the job, you can go back to your champion and say, you know, can you, you know, share any feedback? Mm, You know, the recruiter said this, the hiring manager said this, but like, what do you know about like what it is? And that feedback may come back 99% of the time. It's just, just straight up, sorry, not a fit with your skills, expertise, and like what with, with what we actually want to do here. But then other times it's kind of like, you know, it's a little bit about how you presented yourself um, or it's, you know, this company has its own internal problems and like, you may not want to be a part of it right mm. now. And that, that's, that's really interesting. Cause that's a really important, uh, tip, which is essentially that the, most people think that they'll get feedback from the interview process itself, but the best way to get feedback is through that back channel. And which makes me think I was about to ask you uh, in the context of creativity, what is the importance of parties? Because when I first got, when I first started doing this thing, um, when I first started my company and brought, came to San Francisco, I realized that the best way to meet people was through parties, mm. through this kind of like not this thing where it wasn't related at all to what I was doing, and it, it totally blew my mind. Mm. And then there's another piece which you just get, which is how do you find that champion? I would mm-hmm. imagine it's through parties or mm. through, through social events of some kind. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, I, I, um, I'm, I'm a like highly social animal, and uh-huh. so like. Um, uh, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm very into kind of these organizations, like um, bringing people together through events and things like that. And like somewhat notoriously rented out at t Park and through like a big event for VCs and founders and stuff kind of at, at one of my previous firms. Yeah. Um, but, uh, and, and at AngelList, it's something we're doing now with um, kind of building community around emerging managers, people starting funds. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that's a, that's a big part of my MO. And I think it's this... Um, you know, kind of idea. If you can slam people together who have different ideas, um, they can help each other out. And it's a way to actually scale your own kind of capability mm. by helping people leverage leverage uh, your network. Mm. And so, how, what, do you have any advice for introverts or people who don't feel comfortable in those social? Yeah, it's it's a, a yeah, really great question. Um, Twitter. So, mm. like, I uh, you know, kind of one of my reflections on Twitter is that you know people who maybe appear to be the most social and most active on Twitter uh, like might also be introverts mm. or or um, you know, um, I'm, I'm actually kind of like, I'm not sure in the whole introvert extrovert kind of classification, um, in general, but you know, people who kind of write a lot, like I'm, I'll post some stuff on Twitter, but I, I just love getting together one-on-one with people or in groups and I get a lot of energy from that. Mm-hmm. So I seek that out, um, where, um, you know, some folks who I know are very active on Twitter. They do obviously also like interact with folks, but they don't like events in a big way. Um, so I think Twitter is actually like a underutilized resource for people in Silicon Valley to connect with um, other kind of like thought leaders or areas of expertise. Mm-hmm. I'll have people reach out to me, and I'm you know I'm not saying I'm going to take every meeting on, from people who reach out to me on Twitter, but um, it's a it's a fun way to get to know mm-hmm. um, other folks because they're they're sharing what's kind of coming to mind. Mm-hmm. And yeah, there can be some curation and brand and all that they may be trying to push, but uh-huh. you know for the most part, people aren't that. Um, you know, aren't that polished and they just want to express themselves. Yeah. 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 And I've, I found that I've created this own idea in my head about, about when I'm, uh, on Twitter and seeing people who stick to this narrative really well. Um, and then I'm like, Oh, I wish I could do that because when I, like I have, I have these just thoughts that are just like so arbitrary and like indifferent, but I want to express those as well, but it doesn't, 
allow people to put me into this narrative that they have of, of this thing. Right, kind of a bucket. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. What is that? What can you do? Can you, we talk about that? <laughs> yeah. You know, I've, I've talked with a number of, um, honestly, like VCs who are looking, you know, kind of through that lens of how can I, you know, create a persona or create a brand or, excuse me, and, and it's mostly kind of like, how can I get access to founders on a platform where they're, you know, might be interested in following me and consuming content that I publish. Mm. And um, I think the big thing is, it comes back to that, like, what's that authentic voice? And what, what's, the, what's the authentic thing that that person is good at? And sometimes it takes, you know, I, I for sure have not come up with for myself, like, what am I good at? It takes reflection from other people who know you or have paid attention to you. Um, so I, I would highly recommend kind of getting reflection from other people. And then, um, you know, I guess in a sense, it takes some kind of restraint to not just put everything out there (laughs) on Twitter. You know, like, um, uh, like, you know, I'm at AngelList and like I've met Naval a couple few times, but um, I know him mostly through Twitter. Uh And I think most people know Naval through Twitter. And it's it's impressive that he has some, he has built himself as, people call him like a philosopher king on Twitter, right? And so even Mm. even more interestingly, like the people that we used to think of as, kind of like the academics or the smart people in society. Maybe they used to be professors within universities or politicians kind of within our local counties. Um, but now it has opened up this whole opportunity on Twitter for there to be people who are these like global kind of like philosophers or thought leaders. Mm-hmm. Um, again, it kind of gets back to the scale piece. Mm-hmm. And and so, you know, I think the creativity thing there is like how, you know, who do you want to reach? How do you, how do you kind of articulate your best self? And then, um, um, you know, and then kind of reinforce that over and over. Mm. I've, I've been really intrigued by um, what uh, AOC, Alexandria um, Ocasio-Cortez, is doing with Instagram Live. Even though I, ha- I haven't actually watched it, I've seen mm. her other people repost it on Twitter mm. of, like, you know, praising her for just kind of streaming when she's cooking or something like mm. that. And I think it's it's very confusing to a lot of people, especially other Congress people, because they're like, who's this woman that's, like, putting everything on social media all the time? Mm. Um, but it's a it's, you know, a very direct way to get access to kind of like how she thinks. And if you're a fan of her, then you can just like consume that and she becomes a hero to you. Mm. And that's a really interesting point, which most politicians strive for is that here in Silicon Valley, we have this intellectual uh, uh, sharing of ideas, but the rest of the world seems to work with more of a devotion and sharing of love and connecting Mm. on this, this, this uh, emotional devotional level of like uh, somebody like AOC who, who, who creates this just this sense of like love for mm-hmm. for for her, her fans um, and uh, and what do you think about that difference? And it seems to me that the intellectual never passes into that mainstream. Mm. Yeah. It, it it's really interesting. Um, I think that there's you know kind of traps in excuse me taps into like a tribal nature mm-hmm. of like seeking validation and love and approval mm-hmm. and belonging, um, which you know kind of the current narrative is that this tribalism is bad uh-huh. but the reality is like you know we're it's somewhat natural yeah um and uh, I, I think the other bit is this there's this challenge of just the internet in general where you're like how much of this is real and what is real here mm-hmm. um and so you know i i would love to see a um in, in some you know particularly like sec- secular cultures like how do we how can we swing back to um having you know, some community and organization and, mm. and um, even just ways to connect with people that aren't 
professional and aren't kind of relational, but, you know, more classically the third place that we would talk, you know, mm-hmm. used to, you know, used to talk about as like the pub or the coffee shop. Um, there's, you know, a lot of value in, in having these other areas of society where you can just go and relax and like take the edge off. Mm-hmm. So I think we're, we're seeing it a little bit in, um, these, you know, new tribes, like these are kind of like fitness tribes. Um, mm-hmm. and, um, you know, even these like new things like spas or like relaxing places, but the, the heart of it is like, how can you do something consistently where the same people show up kind of over and over and build relationships, trust, um, and kind of belief in each other. Um, just like classic, uh, kind of support and relationship building, Re- you know, th- it's funny you hear about like internet products, you know, oh, I, I loved Instagram back when there, you know, it was the beginning. I loved Twitter or Facebook back when it was the beginning uh-huh. because that's kind of that feeling of we all showed up together and we were all part of something and now everyone's part of it. But, um, there's, there's value to both. Obviously the scale of these platforms is, is helpful to spread ideas, but there is certainly value in just getting a small group of people together. Mm. And that seems to be the way that social groups are going back to, and this is what I heard, I haven't, I mean, I haven't really experienced it, but people are saying that most important conversations are now going away from larger platforms and going to smaller groups and on mm-hmm. WhatsApp or smaller private yeah. groups of less than 150 people. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's healthy from that sense of like belonging and security kind of in the hierarchy of needs and, and, um, you know, then the, you know, going up the, being able to spread ideas is obviously insanely valuable, but I think, um, you know, we do have to think of ourselves, you know, individually first, it's kind of like, you gotta, you know, um, you gotta have a sense of security and, and belonging and, um, health and kind of all that to then be able to give. Otherwise you're just kind of running your cup mm-hmm, low. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, what are you reading right now? Um, reading Phil Knight's book on uh, Shoe Dog, which is fun. I, I, you know, everyone had talked about it as like a, a great business book, and like, yeah, it's a good business book. It's really just like fun storytelling about uh-huh. a dude who was like selling shoes. As like, it's great, and obviously we know it worked out, so it's it's kind of fun to, to read the background. It's Nike, right? It's Nike, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm I'm I just listened to the prologue of Who's Michael Ovitz, so I'm I'm very intrigued by Michael Ovitz. Um, I, I read the you know he had this other book on CAA that. Um, was a big motivator to me in this version of like this hiring agency that I had started in Silicon Valley to help people find jobs in tech. Um, there, there are obviously like sides of him that like he's incredibly hardworking. He's a bit of a shark, it sounds like. Um, but he he cared so much about his clients, mm. and um, that's something that I aspire to. Mm. Um, and he had this other like little line in the in the in the prologue that was about like you know it's it it really is about belief and like it's the person who believes the most that can like really push something to make something happen Mm. in VC and investing and startups and all that. We talk about this idea of conviction. Um, and there's something around that, like belief and conviction. Um, and there's something incredibly valuable when you say to, you know, someone like, I believe in you and I think you can make this happen. It's like very affirming. And I can imagine like having someone like Michael Ovitz on your side who like really believed in you and who, you know, was out there in the world, promoting you in a way that like you can do yourself and other people weren't doing it just must be an incredible feeling mm-hmm. um i you know i think everyone deserves that feeling mm-hmm. and um that's something that i, I it aspire, inspires me and i mm-hmm. hope i can provide that for other people and that seems like something that's valuable about organizations particularly maybe healthy ones maybe even unhealthy ones too uh but uh, that that they provide this container that that 
somebody who maybe actually even looks like a father figure or a mother figure mm. can kind of provide that like direction guidance that they mm. didn't get when they were younger and stuff like that. Yeah. yeah you know, kind of, kind of tapping into your, your last um, episode mm. that you published around kind of the attachment stuff. I think that's very interesting. It actually made me think of like fundraising, you know, people think of fundraising as like a game, even like a one shot game where it's like the reality is you're, you're making believers, you're building trust, you're building a relationship because these are partners you're going to be in business with for a long time. And, um, you, you, you know, the right way to think about it is like, how, how can I find kind of my, my believers mm-hmm. and how can I find the people that want to support me in this process? Mm-hmm. Not like, how can I go get the most money from like, you know, one investor and then like be done and get back to work though, though, like you may want to get back to work. The, the real work here is, is building up the trust relationships with the people who mm-hmm. you care about and care about you. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, some founders, you know, founders have said things like, um, you know, what do I tell, you know, they offered to make an intro to this, this firm for me. Um, I already met with a partner there and they passed, like, what do I tell them? Do I tell them that? Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it, you know, after listening to the attachment theory episode, I was like, wow, there's actually some attachment theory stuff here. Cause if you're coming at this from a place of strength and courage, you, you, you know, it's like, this is what happened. Um, you know, we had a good conversation. Um, they passed. So like, you know, unless you think another partner would be interested in another way, which usually isn't the case at one firm, then I think that's okay. But thanks for offering. Mm. But the, the insecurity comes in. We're like, Oh, well, what, what would, you know, this investor think if they offered me to introduce me to someone else, and I already told them that other person passed. Now, are they going to pass because of there's some social proof issue there? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's, it's really hard to like sit in that, you know, kind of with, with security and courage. Mm, interesting. Um, but it's, you know, a, a founder who's like, you know, we're going to make this happen. And if other people, you know, I'm, I'm ready to take my 50 no's before I get to my yes. Then it's like, okay, that's what I'm talking about. Yeah. Let's do this. <laughs> yeah. 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 And that's brings in mindset and attitude of like, just knowing that that's going to be the case and really believing that, not mm-hmm. knowing it at an intellectual level, but just being prepared for like, this is going to be a lot of rejection. Right. And, yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's entering the mystery. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Back into the chaos and yeah. stuff like that. That's yeah. really interesting. Uh, so yeah, we've got a couple minutes left. Um, I want, kind of want to touch on something that I've always been interested in is that if, have you ever come across, you don't have to name names or anything. Have you ever come across a, a founder who does kind of, uh, who is, able to project that story, but that story is based off of something that's not real, for mm. example, like the Theranos or, or mm. something like that? Um, you know, the, so, so certainly yes. I think the, um, the thing that I have learned to be um, kind of cognizant of is the things around that, because it's one thing is like, I'm, you know, I or we are going to go build this big thing and I can, um, be inspired by that and want to go towards that. But then there are all these little behaviors around that that usually come in around like, how do you treat other people? Um, you, um, mm. you know, kind of where is the ego? Um, you know, what what do you want for your customers? What do you want for your team? Um, you know, some authenticity around that. Because I think the, I think having a big aspirational, um, you know, big, hairy, audacious goal is uh, healthy. Mm-hmm. Um, but the so much of it is like the how and like what are the little other behaviors and i i I, um you know kind of one of the unspoken truths of silicon valley is that um there are there are founders who are um you know have big 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 you know huge visions but they mistreat people they like yell at employees Mm -hmm. they like um you know they um I don't know. I've just like heard stories. Mm. It, 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 it's it's. I think one of the things that I um, 
I kind of wrestle with is, so what do you do when you hear about founders like this? Mm-hmm. Um, do you out them to the community and like shame them in some way that doesn't feel right to me? Um, do you, um, you know, kind of take that information and then, you know, when, a, when some question about this person comes up, do you kind of share it privately? Mm-hmm. Um, that's kind of been my path mostly. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not like everyone out there is, is like predators or abusers or, or really evil tell. or something. Yeah, you yeah. can't really tell. But part of the, um, I think kind of part of, yeah, definitely part of my lesson of being in Silicon Valley is kind of like picking up signals of how, how people behave um, in a like, you know, multi-shot game. Um, and then, you know, for like people I know and trust and love and care about, like, I'll, you know, kind of happily share things about mm-hmm. like, hey, you know, you may not want to work with this founder mm-hmm. or... Um, you know, th- this person has reputation for X. Man, it's so relationship driven and kind of mm-hmm. reputation driven. And there does seem to be a line too, because uh, uh, some people I've, I know who worked with Steve Jobs said that basically in the beginning he was that asshole mm-hmm. and he was yelling at people, but over time he kind of like self corrected and, mm-hmm. and towards the end he wasn't at, at that same way to deal with it. Yeah. And like there is a huge difference between what Steve Jobs does and what maybe the woman from Theranos does and some other right. people that have had yeah. experience with it. Yeah. And I, you know, fundamentally I believe people can change kind of back to that, like many possibilities for any person. Um, but it does, in my view, take like a, like a dying of the ego and mm. a transformation. One of the things that was so fun about helping people find jobs is like we would kind of quickly go through this process of like, this is, these are your goals. These are your constraints. Here's how we might get here. But like some of these things you're holding to are going to have to die. Mm-hmm. You're going to have to let go and we're going to have to like release the constraints on yourself so that you can become someone that you didn't know you could be. Mm-hmm. So um, I, the, the challenge is, is when the, you know, the kind of the Theranos and um, that whole story, when it's so much about holding on to it and like really got to hold on to this thing. I've told everyone I'm so this enveloped idea. and so wrapped into it, not only me, but my investors who knew me since like growing up, of course they have to hold on because everything is on the line. Mm. And like imagine releasing that and letting that go and letting kind of like mm. life flow back in mm-hmm. and, and having it be less about like, um, you know, my friend Larissa Conte, who runs an amazing um, coaching, leadership coaching company called Wayfinding talks about um, the snake that doesn't shed its skin dies from suffocating. Mm. And so we are in this constant process of rebirth and like growing out of the skin we're in. Um, I love the phrase of like, you know, the, what serves me now? Does this serve me anymore? And particularly this idea of like shedding the skin, the ego um, allows for this transformation to happen. Mm. Yep. And that kind of reminds me about the, the hard thing about hard things. Mm-hmm. Uh, the I think it's mm-hmm. Horowitz who wrote that. Yep. Uh, you just read that story. It's just like so much hard stuff happened in building that business and it seems like that is the rule with startups not the exception that that, that like right. if you start if you try to build something from nothing you are going to spend the next three to five years uh going from challenge to challenge to challenge which will really really challenge everything you've had and that will unless you adapt to it is gonna is gonna make you go crazy basically yeah, yeah. and it's why they say kind of you know they prefer founders who've known each other for a long time because mm-hmm. there's something else holding them together than just the idea of like we're going to build a business you know sell to a lot of customers make a lot of money or mm-hmm. do something mm-hmm. but like there's a kind of core to like we're doing this for a deeper reason and as the waves wash over us we're just going to like take them and mm-hmm. we'll still be standing there mm-hmm. that's really great so um, thank you so much for coming on the show. How can people find you? Yeah, so um, you can find me on my website, jetstream.io. Um, you can find me on AngelList, and uh, you can find me on Twitter. My username is LeapNet. Cool. Thank you so much. Thanks, Stuart. Thanks for your questions. Yeah.
Thanks for tuning into the show. If you liked it, please go ahead and find us on iTunes or Spotify and hit the subscribe button. I'll publish each episode by Monday morning before your commute, so make sure to check in then. And this is a reminder to just own your crazy because the challenges that this world will be facing over the next hundred years will require us to think way outside the box. As Hunter S. Thompson said, when the going gets weird, the weird turn pro. Thanks. Have a great day.